The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. Some of you know that recently there has been a, a scandal in the Coatesville School District. I think many of you are familiar with this, that it was found out that the former superintendent and the former athletic director at Coatesville High School had been engaged for some time in sending back and forth to each other racist texts. And I'm not going to read you any of them. They are truly vile, despicable. They are violent in word and at times almost in intent. What you may not know, perhaps some of you do, is how these texts came to light. This fellow here on my left, your right, Jim Donato, the former athletic director of the high school, had been bugging the head of technological services in the district for months, really badgering this gentleman for a new smartphone because he said his white Blackberry was very girly and he didn't want it anymore. So finally, the tech services director took the Blackberry back, was about to wipe it, and found with absolutely no effort whatsoever to try and hide these vile words that these two gentlemen had said back and forth, found them right on the phone. And so our first reaction might be, in addition to the vileness and the racism of the thoughts expressed, how could Donato be so stupid? <laughs> how could he be so unaware? But actually, there's a growing body of research that says his actions, his complete inability to hide his behavior, totally makes sense. There's a guy named Daniel Goleman that some of you may know. He is a researcher of what they call emotional intelligence, EQ. We hear a lot in this society about IQ, what sometimes is called raw intelligence, measuring cognitive, intellectual ability. And there's a lot of controversy about IQ itself. But leaving that aside, Daniel Goleman measures EQ, emotional intelligence, our ability to be self-aware, to know what's going on within ourselves, our ability to be able to relate to other people in meaningful ways, our ability to be able to connect with others. And this past week, Daniel Goleman wrote in the New York Times, it's been shared a lot on social media, I shared it this past week on Facebook, the results of some research that he and others have done, which basically comes down to this one point. That the more social power we consider ourselves to have, especially in relationship with people who we consider to have less social power, we are much less likely to have empathy or compassion towards them. Much more likely to dismiss their presence if we feel there's a power imbalance and we're on top. So one of the ways they did some of this research is they set up a number of different experiments, like five-minute getting acquainted sessions. The people didn't know they were being studied. They thought they were just kind of meeting each other in a social circumstance. And what they found over and over and over again is that the people in those pairings who considered themselves to have more social power regularly interrupted, looked past, like, you know, not maintained eye contact, and cut off the people who they considered to be less powerful than themselves. Repeatedly, over and over again, they saw this pattern. And by the way, this picks up on some research that also made the rounds on social media. It's associated with the lab at the University of California. And it's a professor who speaks about his research as embedded with a whole bunch of other folks' research. 30 different studies like it, 
studying thousands of people. And this is some of what they found. That where they did the research in California, 90% of California drivers, they set up a a camera to be able to record this, 90% of California drivers who they studied followed the law requiring them to brake when a pedestrian is going by in a crosswalk. But people who drive luxury vehicles are three to four times less likely to brake for a pedestrian in the crosswalk. In another test of honesty, in reporting dice rolls, they found that people making $150,000 a year, more than $150,000 a year, cheated four times as much as someone who made $15,000 a year. And the interesting thing about this research is that you didn't even need to be wealthy for the results to make sense. And so they set up another part of their experiment in which there were two players in a Monopoly game. And one of the Monopoly players, it was rigged, although they did not know that, to give that person a randomly selected extra starting layer of cash and dice rolls. And here's what they found. The player who had that advantage was more likely to say that he or she deserved to win based on their skills (laughs) rather than the fact that this was total, complete luck that they wound up ahead. And if you think I'm making a political argument here, I'm not. Because by the way, liberals and conservatives self-identified in that study who both got the advantage in Monopoly Both thought they were the ones who it was owed to because of their skill, not because of random chance. So back to that question again. Why was was Donato so obvious, so oblivious? Maybe the answer is very simple, which is that his privilege, his prestige, his position, his power made it much more likely that he just didn't care at all the fact that people found out what he was saying. Now, when I went through some of that research, maybe you felt a little, um, maybe you felt a little discomfort. Maybe you didn't like what I was saying. I didn't like it either. I grew up wealthy. And let me tell you, I don't hate money. I like money. And I certainly don't think all people of power, prestige, or privilege are corrupt in the same way that I don't think all poor people are necessarily virtuous. And yet, in the context of the society, a society in which there is growing inequality of power, prestige, and privilege in all kinds of ways, a society that right now is dysfunctionally and often angrily trying to make decisions about who gets what resources, I believe that the most important gap isn't financial. The gap is one of empathy and compassion. Our fault lies not in our deficits, our fault lies in our hearts. See, because this empathy gap affects all of us. It makes us more likely as a society to esteem instant gratification, to esteem things that promise the illusion of happiness, but really just give momentary pleasure, and less likely to pay attention to the things that people who research happiness for years tell us over and over again lead to real sustainable happiness. Authentic relationship, the opportunity to connect meaningfully, the chance to go beyond superficiality, and to really be known by other people. 
These things make for real happiness, not wealth over and over again. This is demonstrated, but real human connection brings happiness and fulfillment in this life. And so especially if we find ourselves regularly in interactions with other people on the side of the compassion gap, on the side in which our power, prestige, or privilege means that we might be tempted to overlook other people, overlook their reality. I think that the most important stretch that any of us can engage in is the stretch of compassion. The intention to authentically connect and perceive the reality around us and within us. If you've been here before for this, uh, for this series that I'm doing about an intentional life, you may remember that intention is not just the, about the word aspiration or goal we want to reach. Intention means literally, in the Latin root word, to stretch, to stretch out for. And so I'm going to ask us briefly now to do just a little bit of that cheerio again. They're pretty packed here, so please close your eyes and, and carefully Reach your arms out to the side. I can tell already with the giggles that some of you might have smacked someone in the nose. Uh, be gentle with reaching out, but still stretch to the side. Stretch outward with the fingertips. Feel that stretch at the edges of the fingertips. Just getting a sense of what it's like to stretch. Maybe open up that chest a little bit. Open up wide. And then slowly with an out breath, bring the hands together in that space over the heart. And just hold this pose for just a moment, connecting literally, metaphorically with the beating of our hearts, the center of value, the center of who we are and what we love. You can open your eyes and thank you. It is the hallmark of all mature spiritual teachings or religious traditions that the stretch of compassion is one that we need to make regularly in this life and is the one that most indicates our depth of spiritual maturity. But religions and spiritual teachings so often fall short in this measure. Maybe you've heard these phrases before. Health and wealth Buddhism, prosperity gospel. These teachings say that your health, your wealth, your well-being shows that you are certainly blessed by the universe, by God, and you're doing something right because you have merited favor. And by the way, the opposite of this says that if you have disease, debt, despair, there is something wrong with you. You have fallen out of favor with the universe. This is not what I believe at all. What I believe, in fact, and I think the research shows, is that in reality it might work the other way. That the greatest threats to the health and well-being of our souls are power, prestige, and privilege. Because these things can hide from us what I like to call universalism 101. We all come from the same source. We all return to the same source. We are much more alike than we are different. And the illusion of our separateness is one of the worst sicknesses of the soul. Religions and spiritual teachings can be wonderful at opening ourselves up to this awakening of our profound connections. Or they can be the greatest sources of denial of our profound connections. The tradition in which I grew up, Judaism, 
I didn't know any of this, by the way, until I went to a Christian seminary to actually study ancient Israelite religion. They didn't teach me these things. But Israelite religion was several thousand years ago. It was a priestly tradition. It was all about the central temple in Judaism. It was a hierarchical, paternalistic tradition. And your health, your well-being in that society was determined by the amount of your sacrifice to the temple, the amount of offering you made to the temple, or very often to the priests. But something interesting happened along the way in that society. That society that, by the way, gave us the term scapegoating. What unhealthy, what often vicious societies do. There, whoever they are, they're dirty, they're dangerous, they're diseased. If we get rid of them, then we in here will be okay. It is blaming the outcast because we do not want to see the fullness and the wholeness of life that, of course, involves us. But something interesting happened to ancient Israelite religion. They found what eventually we will always find in this life. There is going to be someone with more power than us. And so the ancient Israelites lost their temple. They lost their home and were sent into exile. And when a couple hundred years later they returned, they were changed. Their hearts changed. They turned from a way of talking about the temple being the center of all spiritual life to the heart, to love, and compassion being the center of spiritual health and well-being. Their experience of God radically altered. The prophets spoke things that if you are a society or if you're a person that disregards the widows and orphans, Children and women in ancient Israelite society, the most vulnerable. If you disregard these people, then they had the words of their God saying back to them, I hate, I despise your festivals. The smell of your offerings sickens me. They started to locate in the heart and injustice and compassion where true spirituality lies. And by the way, I'm not so fond on this whole idea of, you know, the God of wrath, the God of anger. It doesn't really work for me too much. So when I was reading this and these ancient passages in preparation for today's message, I thought, well, what part like really correlates with my own experience? When do I get in touch with, with, with those feelings around power, prestige, and privilege, my own or other people that kind of drives me up the wall? And I knew it immediately. I've talked to you about some of this before. It's this. It's this. It's this. New Yankee Stadium. I, I, I can't be a recovering Yankees fan because I have no desire to recover from it. But I am kind of a crestfallen Yankees fan. I mean, old Yankee Stadium was one of my sacred places in the world. I told friends of mine, if I should happen to die before you, please somehow sneak my cremains onto the field so my ashes will be commingled with the sacred dirt of old Yankee Stadium. And then they went ahead and built this monstrosity of greed and ego. I've only been there once. I don't know the next time I'll go. Because you might see that, you know, full up top, full in the middle, full a little bit down below, and then empty in the $500 seats. And actually, there's a whole other perspective you can get that right in back of home plate, the $2,000 seats, those lie incredibly empty most of the time. They're sold most of the time. It's just the folks don't care to show up. Or the area that they're 
contained in. Literally, there is a concrete wall separating the concrete, these seats from the rest of the stadium as if they don't want to, you know, be sullied by the hoi polloi out there. Like you can almost imagine like crocodiles in a moat, you know, not being able to traverse this distance. Well, what it's done is it, as a fan, it's actually hurt the experience for all of us. You know, one of the best things about being a fan is the sense of being all in this together. But you go to New Yankee Stadium or you're watching on television and thousands of seats closest to the field are completely empty. It hurts the energy. And, and by the way, yeah, I hate to say this, but the Red Sox did it right. <laughs> they had an old... Yes, a, woo, yeah. They lost last night, you know. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> awesome. They did it right. They had a whole old falling apart, decrepit stadium, and they redid it. And they kept their spirit. And they kept their energy. And they kept that sense of being all in it together. But this is sports. It ultimately doesn't matter that much. This sense of losing the connection with being all in this together, it matters in our lives. When we lose this connection, it makes us much more likely to dehumanize others when we don't recognize the essential unity of this life. And the more privilege, prestige, power that we have, I was born into a wealthy family through no effort of my own as a straight white male in the society. It is incumbent upon me, I believe, to learn to stretch my capacity for compassion. The more privilege, prestige, power we have, the more likely it is that we'll miss this unity. And so when we recognize however in our lives, whether caste or class, gender, expression, sexual orientation, race, skin color, all these different things, we recognize the ways that these can inhibit the growth of our souls by leading us to believe that we are in fact more important than other people, this costs us in this life. And at those moments, we recognize our power, prestige, privilege, to remember to stretch and not close down. I had an experience of this very, very recently, very, very recently. I was invited up a week and a half ago to preach before a bunch of my colleagues in New York. And it's an honor to preach before your colleagues. And I, I want to be humble about this, but I also want to be... Um, honest. Uh, after it was done, I knew it. I rocked the house. <laughs> People were posting on Facebook about it. Thank you, Reverend Ken. You're doing great things at Wellsprings. Yeah, blah, blah. And you know, all the people there were telling me this is so great. This is setting me up for a great year congregationally. Thank you. And of course, I felt great about myself in ways more than just ego because, you know, what I was offering to them were things close to the center of my heart. I was getting all this great feedback, and then one colleague came up to me, and, and they said, I'd like to talk to you for a moment. They reflected on the message I had given and thanked me, and then they said, you know what? When you went off mic, I did that during the service. They didn't give me a Madonna mic. They gave me a stationary mic, and at one point, I wanted to walk over to another part of the stage where I was preaching, and I said, hey, folks, is it okay if I go off mic? And I listened to most of those folks who said yes. She said, when you did that, 
I only have 50% hearing, and I could no longer hear you. And at that point, I couldn't participate with the rest of the group. Now, what I recognized in that moment when my colleague, when I was feeling just, I was feeling the glory of me, right? (laughs) When my colleague told that to me, I felt that like closing down, closing off. But didn't you see how good I did? Can you pay attention to that? It's at that moment that I reminded myself, that is where the stretch matters most. That person who did not have the same capacities as me. Important for those of us who have power, prestige, privilege to recognize, not to shut down, but even more to open up and not believe our experience is more important than theirs. This is not just an individual stretch or individual intention. This matters in our society. I know that some corporations, some institutions value things like emotional intelligence, but not all do. And so I want to cast a vision with you right now. I want to share a dream with you that in the future, something like what I'm going to read you right now will be absolutely commonplace. Well, applicant S., We're very impressed with your degrees from Elite University X and certificates from esteemed training center Y and your body of work with our competitor Z. But we cannot offer you this job because our assessment reveals that you are compassionately underdeveloped. And it's too great a liability for us to have someone like you working in our organization. This means you are too likely to demean, diminish, or dismiss your coworkers, particularly those people who work for you. But here's the good news. There's hope for you. We've heard that a group called Roots of Empathy, which for years, decades, has worked with children in anti-bullying efforts, they have just opened up a center to work with adults who are likely to diminish, demean, dismiss the people who work for them. You might go and study with them. Another choice. There's a local ashram in which, in addition to a couple hours of yoga that you might do on retreat, you are required to go and clean the rooms of the homeless in a homeless shelter or sit by the bedside of the dying. There's also a local Cistercian and Buddhist monastic communities around here that have programs for those of you who need or want to grow your heart practices and learn to love deeper. So there's hope for you. The choice is yours. You do not have to consign yourself to be compassionately underdeveloped anymore. That's my dream. And I know like most visions, it doesn't have yet a basis in reality. I know that most of our society treats the central estimation and goal of our lives to be getting power in the first place. Political power, personal power, interpersonal power, power over other people. But we spend very little time asking ourselves, what is that power for? How can we use it wisely and well? I think this is the challenge of our times, not getting power. That's the easy part in a lot of ways but how to use that power wisely and well. And there are some people who are doing it well, I think. Here's one of them. 
Just about every Unitarian Universalist's favorite pope. <laughs> pope Francis. Who has not, so far as I know, changed any of the teachings of the church. But he has changed the energy of his church. Speaking about his youthful arrogance, he now stresses humility in his leadership. Instead of living in the fanciest places in the Vatican where previous popes had put on their finery, he lives in the Vatican hostel in a small apartment. When asked about what he would do when meeting a gay person, he did not go into the vile language or theology or rhetoric of the past previous popes and talk about they are objectively disordered or sinful. He said, I would focus on that person as a person. And I'm reminded with Pope Francis of his namesake, St. Francis. St. Francis, who was a man of tremendous privilege as a youth. And grew his heart so wide that eventually he saw the divine in everything and in every creature. And through that changed the world. I'm not going to read you all of his famous prayer, but just a few words of it that some of you already know and some of you may have committed to heart. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Rather than striving to be understood, may I understand Rather than focusing on being loved, may I learn to love. This path of humility and compassion changes us. It changes our relationships. And so this day, in whatever ways you struggle with power, prestige, privilege, this day may we be given a daily stretch a daily stretch towards justice, a daily stretch towards compassion, daily stretch in the making of our hearts into the form of love. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of many names, perceived more deeply in the stretching of our hearts, as our hearts grow wide and full and connected. May we recognize the call of justice, the call of humility, the call of compassion, as we do our part to remake a world from unhealthy power, power over, power that hurts, power that harms, into power that heals, into the power of relationship, wholeness, and connection. May our lives this day take on the form and shape and flow of that spirit of love from which we come to which we go and journeys with us all of our days, if only we would recognize it. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.